Hi everybody, welcome to this episode of the Heart Podcast. I'm James Rudd, the Digital Media Editor at Heart, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Dr. Ramesh Nadaraja from the University of Leeds. Ramesh, along with his colleagues from Leeds, have written a systematic review and a meta-analysis all about the prediction of atrial fibrillation from electronic healthcare records in primary care. I hope you enjoy the show. We have a great discussion about the current methods that are used, whether we need a more formalized national screening program, and what the future using machine learning in this context might look like. If you enjoyed the show, please do leave us a nice review on iTunes or your podcast app of choice. If you don't enjoy the show, please let me know on Twitter at J-H-F-R-U-D-D, and I will try and improve things for you. I hope you enjoy this one. Thanks very much indeed, Ramesh, for joining me today on the Heart Podcast. Maybe we can start by my asking you to introduce yourself for the audience. Uh, who are you? Where do you work? And what do you do? Thank you, James. Thanks, first of all, for the invite to speak today. Um, I'm a cardiology registrar working in, in West Yorkshire at the Leeds General Infirmary, and I'm currently a BHF Clinical Research Fellow, completing a PhD in the development, validation and implementation of an algorithm to predict the risk of an individual developing atrial fibrillation, particularly looking at the use of artificial intelligence technologies. Fantastic. And I really wanted to get you on the podcast when I saw a paper that you've recently published in Heart, which is called Prediction of Incident Atrial Fibrillation in Community-Based Electronic Healthcare Records, a Systematic Review with Meta-Analysis. And I guess this might be the sort of first part of your PhD, just sort of, you know, looking at the landscape, what's out there already. Um, but perhaps we can start with real basics, Ramesh. Why is AF important and why do you think this study needed to be done? Thank you, James. As you say, it is the kind of the first part of, of the, um, the programme of work that I'm doing. And as you say, atrial fibrillation, why are we looking at it? Well, we know that atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained cardiac arrhythmia in adults. I think the most recent estimates put it about 2 to 4% in the general population prevalence. And that's expected to double over the forthcoming years in line with extended longevity in the general population and alongside increasing comorbidity burden. And this is of particular relevance to populations in Europe and the USA. And we know from data that people of European ancestry at the age of 55 have about a one in three chance of developing atrial fibrillation during their lifetime. So we know it's extremely common. But we also know that it has a lot of effects. So we know that it's related to an increased risk of death, of heart failure, of cognitive decline and depression. And one area we're particularly interested in is its uh, increased risk that it confers of stroke. So we know that atrial fibrillation confers an appropriate, uh, you know, approximately a five-fold increased risk of stroke. And we know that about 10 to 15% of strokes occur in the context of undiagnosed and untreated atrial fibrillation and that these are more likely to be fatal and disabling. And I think this is a particular shame because we know that over the recent decade, we have now a range of effective, safe and well-tolerated oral anticoagulants. And so we know that if we could detect these cases of atrial fibrillation earlier and we could get them on the appropriate therapy, we could prevent a large number of strokes, uh, which makes sense obviously for the individual with the morbidity and mortality associated with stroke, but also for the NHS and for European healthcare systems, given how much stroke costs per year. 
Absolutely. I think we're, we're certainly all aware of what a big issue this is. And what particular problem or sort of gap in the data were you trying to address with your study? So, as, as, as I said, we were looking in our group and with my work in particular, how to improve the detection of undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. And we know a large number of people who are undiagnosed will be the older patients, the more comorbid, and by definition, those at elevated risk of stroke. So one strategy to increase the detection rates of atrial fibrillation would be through some sort of screening protocol or program. Um, and there is differing guidelines on this. So in the most recent European Society of Cardiology guidelines, there was a, a class one recommendation for sort of opportunistic palpation uh, a pulse or ECG rhythm strip in people over the age of 65 but a class 2A recommendation for a more systematic, intensive approach in people over the age of 75. Um, however, opportunistic screening, that relies on healthcare professionals adding to their already busy daily workload, and it may well be overlooked. Furthermore, a single time point uh, check of a pulse may underestimate the true prevalence of sort of subclinical or undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. And... Um, there was a recent paper in the BMJ looking at a cluster randomised control trial in primary care in Netherlands, where they checked opportunistic screening, and they found that it didn't actually improve the detection rate of AF in people over the age of 65. By contrast, obviously, there's a systematic approach with a prolonged period of screening with um, you know, a wearable device or a handheld device, which we know increases the rate of detection of atrial fibrillation and the prescription of oral anticoagulation. So, Therefore, there are approaches that can be taken to try and increase detection of atrial fibrillation through screening approaches. But uh, in the most recent UK National Screening Committee guidelines, the US Preventative uh, Services Task Force and the NICE guidelines, a systematic approach to screening was not recommended. In some ways, I feel this is probably a slightly behind where the evidence curve is now. Uh, we know from the stroke stop study that was uh, presented at EHRA and published at the Lancet that a systematic approach to screening in people of 75 and 76 years old with a handheld rhythm monitor not only increases detection of AF and prescription of all anticoagulation, but does reduce a composite of stroke, systemic embolism, bleeding leading to hospitalisation and or cause death. So I certainly feel that the evidence base is moving in a direction where a screening approach to age fibrillation may well be the best approach to take for patients and may be the best approach to increase the detection of age fibrillation. And with that in mind, what we're thinking is, what is the best approach to target a screening approach? Because if you screen purely by age, your numbers need to screen is going to be relatively high. So I think there was an individual patient level meta-analysis in 2013 which showed that if you screen everyone over the age of 65 for atrial fibrillation, to get one case of treatable AF, you need to screen 83 people. Okay. Whereas if you screen everyone over the age of 75 um, to get one treatable case of atrial fibrillation, you will need to screen 67 people. So applying a screening program with those sorts of numbers would be relatively inefficient and probably not as cost-effective as it could be. So what we were looking in this paper is, is there a way, a scalable resource light way of targeting systematic screening or any sort of screening approach? In European countries, we know a large proportion of 
um, people are registered with primary care services. In the UK, it's 98%. So for a large proportion of the population, they're registered with these services and they have a corresponding electronic health record, which provides a health narrative for that individual. And so a algorithm or a model that could utilize this information to predict who is at higher risk of atrial fibrillation will be a scalable approach that would hopefully be resource-like, given it'll be used routinely collected information to target a screening approach for atrial fibrillation. And so what we were looking at here was what is currently available, what has currently been developed or validated in this setting, in this population. Okay, and this is purely a, a primary care study, as you say. Um, okay, perfect. And so how did you set out in your systematic review and meta-analysis? What sort of search strategy did you use to identify methods that might already be out there that people are using? So exactly, we were, we were looking to, first of all, identify what models or algorithms are available for this purpose. We wanted to also understand what their performance was. And then we wanted to understand how they were developed in terms of how future research in this field could be conducted. So to do that, we established a search in the Medline and Embase databases from inception all the way through to March of, of this year. And we used a combination of keywords and subject headings that related to atrial fibrillation, prediction models, and the use of electronic health records. We were looking specifically for studies that were based in adult humans and that were developing or validating a true prediction model or algorithm, not just assessing the association between an individual risk factor and atrial fibrillation. And also we were looking for a model or algorithm that was relevant to the general population. So not that was so that, sorry, that was not specifically for a particular age group or for a particular comorbidity or a particular subset of the population, e.g., i.e., hospital populations, etc. When we completed this search, we identified about 3,900 unique records, which we reviewed, and there was 102 full text reports that we reviewed, and we ended up including about 11 studies. So only 11 studies got through your, your the criteria, okay, to actually go through to the systematic review, okay. Yeah, so there were, there were a number of studies that would have met a number of criteria, but a large number were excluded because they included information that would not necessarily be available in a community-based setting. So especially a large number of studies that were looking at age fibrillation prediction uh, from the United States incorporated information from hospital data. And that might not be actually available when we're looking at a national scalable approach where we're looking for information that will be available within the community. So things like ECGs or investigations that only happen or the information would only be available in hospitals was felt to be not uh, relevant to this particular study. Okay, perfect. And can you talk a little bit about the, the Bayesian approach that you used in some of the statistical methods and, and what this means for perhaps for non-expert stats listeners? Yes, to fair, James, I wouldn't, I wouldn't characterize myself as an expert stats, stats individual either. But, um, so when we were looking at these models, we first wanted to look at the characteristics of what the data sets they were being applied in was. We also wanted to look at the characteristics of the models. And importantly, for all the listeners, we wanted to look at what the performance of the models were. So when we were talking about the performance of the models, we were looking at two different characteristics. We were looking at their discrimination ability, i.e. their ability to distinguish between individuals developing or not developing the outcome, which we assessed through the C-statistic or area under the receiver operating characteristic curve. 
Um, and we all know from that that one is perfect and 0.5 is no better than chance on that metric. And we also looked at calibration, which was looking at the model's accuracy of predicted probabilities, i.e. how different is the expected and observed outcomes across the spectrum of people that the model is being applied to. Um, now, discrimination is pretty much universally reported in these types of studies. Um, and when you want to understand how generalizable a model is, you want to be able to synthesize this data uh, and summarize the performance of the model across multiple data sets. So we attempt to do this through meta-analysis. And as you said, there are a number of approaches that can be taken to this sort of meta-analysis. Generally, traditionally, one would use a frequentist approach with a random effects meta-analysis model. And that's accepting the fact that a variation between um, the performance of models in different data sets is not purely going to be related to chance, but will very likely be affected by the differences in the population that it's being applied to. Okay. Um, for example, different comorbidities, different numbers, differences in the patient profiles. Um, now, a lot of work done by um, real stats gurus, people like Richard Riley, Thomas Debray, Gary Collins, et cetera, have looked in great detail at meta-analysis in these in, in sort of um, prediction model performance across different um, cohorts and databases. And through a number of their simulation studies, they found that the more standard frequentist approach can sometimes lead to uh, confidence and prediction intervals that are too narrow and, and thus overly optimistic. However, a Bayesian approach, uh, which uses formal probability models to express the uncertainty, was found to give more appropriate and larger confidence and prediction intervals. And obviously, just to confirm for this, when I talk about prediction interval, what I'm talking about there is, is an assessment of two things. One, interstudy heterogeneity. And as I said, different cohorts, different databases will have very different populations, so there will be heterogeneity there. But secondly, it gives an understanding of how good the model performance will be in a new validation. Perfect. Um, I think I understand that, but certainly uh, listeners can uh, read the full paper, which I'll make uh, free to access uh, if it's not already, so people can go away and read the, the methods in, in detail. And Ramesh, what were your main results? How would you summarize the, the main findings of the study? Uh, so um, we of these 11 studies, we found that they referred to um, nine prediction models or algorithms, and that these were predominantly derived or validated across actually populations that were based in, in the Asian Pacific countries rather than European countries. We incorporated about uh, almost 18 million patients in these studies, and the cohorts ranged from about 100,000 patients to almost 3 million. But as I said, there was a significant amount of heterogeneity between the populations in terms of the ages of people that were involved and also the instance of atrial fibrillation that was found during follow-up. Uh, in terms of the models themselves, we found that three models had been tested for predicting instant atrial fibrillation that had never actually been derived for that purpose. So the CHADS model, the CHADS-VAST model, and the HATCH model, which everyone's very familiar with for, from atrial fibrillation, either in terms of assessment of bleeding risk or the assessment of progression from paroxysmal to persistent atrial fibrillation, had been widely tested for this purpose. In addition, five models had actually been derived specifically for this purpose using electronic health record databases relevant to the community. Um, one of these was uh, derived in Israel, one in China, 
one in the Republic of Korea, one in Taiwan, and one actually in the UK using routine declarative primary care electronic health records. Um, three of those models had been derived using machine learning methods, which obviously are relatively novel um, and increasingly utilized technique um, as we get used to working with huge data sets. In terms of the models, when you compared them, the traditional regression techniques, which usually um, value parsimony in the variables that they use, generally had a smaller number of variables between about five to 10, whereas the machine learning models, more data-driven approaches, tend to have many more variables between about 19 and 100. And when you looked at their individual performance, we generally found that the machine learning models had a stronger discriminative performance. So we're talking about C statistics over 0.8. In one case, in the derivation data set, it was 0.94, whereas the traditional aggression models tended to have more moderate performances, about 0.7 to 0.75 on an area under curve or C statistic. In terms of the meta-analysis, we only wanted to include models that had been tested in a sufficient number of cohorts. So we were looking for at least three different electronic health record databases for a, a cohorts for a model to be developed and validated in. And when we applied that more strict interpretation, uh, we found that only four models were actually eligible for meta-analysis. And those models were the CHADS model, the CHADS-VAST model, the HATCH model, and the CHEST model, and of those four, only the chess model has actually been derived specifically for predicting instant AF. When we did that meta-analysis, we found that we were including about 9 million patients. And when you look at the summary C-statistics and the 95% prediction intervals, we found the following results. We found that CHADS and CHADS-VASC scores gave summary C-statistics of about 0.67, 0.68, so relatively moderate levels of performance with relatively large prediction intervals. So we're talking about prediction intervals that came very close to 0.5 and all the way up to 0.8, showing there's a significant amount of heterogeneity. Uh, the same was true of the Hatch model. And the CHEST model had a slightly better summary C statistics, so 0.73, so slightly better performance. However, there was a significant amount of heterogeneity in its performance. So actually, its um, prediction interval crossed the 0.5 boundary. So our assessment from that is that the three models, CHADS, CHADS, BASC, and HANCH, showed relatively moderate performance, but we'd be relatively confident that if they were used in a new population, they would have um, sufficient discriminative ability. However, the CHESS model, which might show better individual prediction performance, when it was used in a new population, we would not be confident it would really be better than any better than chance based on, on this assessment. We also did a number of sensitivity analyses, and these were based on our risk of bias assessments, which we use the ProBAST tool for. And actually, this, this led to interesting results. First of all, when you look at the um, risk of bias based on the participants that were involved in these studies, we found that 25% of studies used a kind of population that was at high risk of bias because of the exclusion criteria they applied. And when you applied um, that risk of bias to the meta-analysis and excluded those studies, we found that only the CHADS-VAS score remained with a prediction interval that did not cross the 0.5 boundary and thus was still seen to be discriminative. However, if you took overall risk of bias across the study, 
we found that actually 96% of model results were at high risk of bias. And this was generally because um, uh, studies would not handle missing data appropriately. And we all know that in electronic health records, you're going to have missing data. So either they would exclude patients from missing data, or they would just not mention how they had uh, got over this issue. And we all know that missing data is common and is likely not to be missing completely at random. So therefore, it's likely to be informative and affect the predictor-outcome relationships. So therefore, this puts the vast majority of results that we were using at high risk of bias. And when you apply that more strict interpretation, no model that has thus far been derived or validated for this purpose actually can be incorporated in meta-analysis. And it leads to a low certainty of of um, evidence in our results. So in terms of, you know, how do we interpret this? You know, what's our takeaway from this? Yeah, that's, that's what everyone wants to know, isn't it? When you take all that information, what's the, <laughs> what's the takeaway? Yeah, can you synthesize um, it down a little bit? Sort of, you know, do any of these models have a place in, let's say in general practice in the UK, or should we try and use a model, a machine learning model, which incorporates far more variables? What, what, what do you think? So I think when you look at the data that we've summarized here, I think our overall conclusion would be that no model that has thus far been created on the evidence we have would be suitable for immediate use in you know, the United Kingdom primary care electronic health, health records to target screening fate fibrillation. And that's based on the moderate performance we found in uh, models developed by traditional regression techniques, the high risk of bias in the studies involved, and the overall level of certainty. I think certainly there are opportunities going forward. So as we've said, electronic health records are large, they contain a huge amount of information and they describe the health narrative of individuals. So a technique that can adequately use that information could be extremely effective in predicting people at high risk rate fibrillation. Machine learning models thus far from our um, summarized evidence seem to show the strongest discriminative performance. However, they need to be validated more frequently for us to have certainty in their provenance. And also they need to be used more commonly in European and United Kingdom populations for us to feel they'll be applicable to use um, in this population. Because as we all know, populations across the world differ significantly in comorbidity profiles and demographic profiles. And so what's next for this uh, strand of work, Ramesh? What have you got planned? As you say, we, we've now set the scene and we do believe there is actually a gap for a model that can do what we want it to do, i.e. use routinely collected information that's available across the country, across many European countries, to predict individuals at high risk of developing or undiagnosed atrial fibrillation. So the next step for us is to develop and validate a model for this purpose, an algorithm for this purpose. Um, in terms of how to go about it, I think there's a lot of things we can learn from this study, from this systematic review with meta-analysis. First of all, I think machine learning and artificial intelligence techniques show the most likely route to a strongly discriminative performance. Secondly, I think when you're creating this model, it's important that you're aware of what you're trying to uh, achieve. So a lot of these populations that were uh, the models were tested in included individuals over the age of 18 or over the age of 30, which is fine if you're trying to create a model 
um, that can predict who will develop a atrial fibrillation for the purpose of, let's say, prime prevention. So we know if somebody's at high risk of atrial fibrillation, we should start some, some particular measures now to try and reduce their risk of developing it. Or are you trying to tailor a model to target screening, which seems to have the most immediate relevance? But if you're going to do that, maybe the population you are developing your models in should be a bit more aligned to the population we're actually screening at the moment, which tend to be older, more comorbid patients, more homogenous uh, populations, which will be more difficult to develop models in, but you may well get the most benefit in terms of being able to target screening. Finally, I think it's important that um, given the diversity of populations across the world, if you're looking to try and develop a model to be used in European or the UK populations, that use data sets involving those populations. Uh, and actually, you develop and validate your model in those populations. And also, that you set your prediction horizon, especially if, try, if you're trying to target screening, to something that is actually relevant for investigation in the short term. So a lot of these models looked at the, at the um, instance of atrial fibrillation over a 16-year follow-up. But saying somebody's at high risk of developing atrial fibrillation in the next 16 years might not help you target screening right <laughs> here and right now. So that's, that's something else I think we can learn. And hopefully over this forthcoming few years, we'll be able to develop a model that can meet all of these requirements. And then of course you'll need to, I guess, perhaps do a clinical trial, seeing on the output of the model, starting anticoagulation, whether that has an effect on you know, reducing morbidity and mortality, but, but that's for the future, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I mean, you're completely right. We can develop an, a model that, and hopefully make it implementable, make it applicable and make it powerful. Um, and you will be able to derive from your statistical techniques um, what your, um, or your potential number needed to screen would be and therefore the potential utility. But of course, the real world evidence about how the model is implemented, how feasible it is to implement and how well it works, how well it increases detection rates of atrial fibrillation and whether the atrial fibrillation you're detecting is making a difference in terms of prescription of anticoagulation and of course, long, long-term follow-up for stroke, bleeding and, and all-cause death will need to be um, uh, determined in, in a clinical implementation trial. Uh, and as you said, that is for the future. Uh, but as it's definitely where we see this work going. Brilliant. Well, it's been a, a really good conversation, really interesting to hear what you're up to. Uh, as I say, I'll put a link in the show notes so people can read the full paper. I also noticed that you've published recently in BMJ Open as well, and I'll put the link into that study. Uh, so people can find out more about this work. But thanks ever so much for joining me. Thank you very much, James. Thank you.